The following is a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people. So this morning we're, we're headed into the Easter season. It's Palm Sunday. We're in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, this morning in, a, in a text, again, that may be familiar, but, but I trust that this will be a meaningful conversation. So uh, as a congregation, we have just come through, uh, I think, 12 weeks in 1 John. And week after week, uh, this is just a quick last, maybe last thought for that sort of series, uh, we saw the Apostle John, or Pastor John, emphasize the importance of getting the Jesus question right. Who is Jesus? So this week we'll be in Matthew chapter 21, looking again at who Jesus is and what that means for us. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. We'll be reading the first 22 verses, and then I'll pray and we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, uh, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And when Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out, to this, went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did this fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text this morning. 
and all that it reveals to us about you. I pray this morning that as we we come to these verses, we would come with eyes that are open to see you, ears that are open to hear you, and, and hearts that are soft and willing to learn from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since we're kind of parachuting into the middle of Matthew's gospel here, let me set the scene just really quickly. Matthew 21 is described as a chapter that is the beginning of the end. See, for the previous 20 chapters in Matthew, uh, his readers have journeyed with Jesus from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth, throughout Galilee, into Capernaum and Gennesaret, into the Gentile areas of Tyre and Sidon, to Magadan and Caesarea Philippi, and, and into Jericho and Judea. And now, for the first time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Matthew 21 as a whole, extending after what we've read this morning, records the last week of Jesus' life. See, for three, weeks, three years, Jesus has preached and taught and healed, and now during the Passover week, he was entering the holy city. So over a period of the next eight days, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple. He challenged the religious leaders. He instituted the Lord's Supper, communion, which we celebrated last week. He then got arrested and was tried and crucified and then raised from the dead. That's a pretty good week. And this was the week that all of creation had been waiting for. Back in the Garden of Eden, if we turn back to Genesis chapter 3, God had promised the serpent then, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he will strike your head and you will strike at his heel. Matthew 21, we see that Jesus is declaring himself as the Messiah, as that promised seed in Genesis 3.15. The promised king who would save the people from their sins. But we also see here that he was not only a king for the Jews, but he was a king for all nations. And that, fortunately, means for you and I as well. See, from these verses, we get a picture of our, of, of our king. And we can see how Jesus is worthy of our adoration and the ultimate, ultimately the abandonment of our own rule, of our own lives. So in our verses today, we will see that there are at least 13 attributes of King Jesus. So let's discover them together this morning. The first one, he is the divine king. The first three verses show us that Jesus had divinely ordained these events that were about to happen. He describes to disciples how they would find the colt, and they go on ahead and they found things just as Jesus said. He also tells the disciples that if they're asked why they're grabbing this colt to bring to him, they are to reply that the Lord needs them in verse 3. To say that the Lord needs these animals in this context means that Jesus is more than one's personal, personal master or teacher or rabbi, but this was a claim of being Lord of all, Lord over all creation. Next, we see in verses 4 and 5 that he's the prophesied king. This verse where it, when he says, this will fulfill what the prophet said, comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Jerusalem is often referred to in the Bible as Zion because Mount Zion is the highest and most prominent hill there. So Zechariah prophesied 
spoke, into, spoke truth to the people of God that, that after they had come back from their exile, this remnant of the Israelites would come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and reestablish the city. This would be a time for them of both joy and struggle. Throughout their history, God's people, the people of Israel, had repeatedly seen the tragedy of failed kings. But this prophecy of Zechariah held out hope, promising a day when God would send his king. Zechariah 9.9 begins with a note of joy in the light of the coming king. And it specifies the way that he would arrive. And the fulfillment we see here in Matthew 21 comes 500 years later. God promised that a donkey and a colt would be available the week before Passover for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. Jesus here is not only showing himself to be the prophesied king from Zechariah 9, but he's also claiming that as he claims that prophecy for himself, that he is the righteous king. If we go back through our Old Testament and we read through Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, we see that the history of Israel is filled with kings listed as bad, evil, and wicked in the eyes of God. Even those who are listed of good often have negative things told about them. But not this king. Not Jesus. Jesus is the righteous king. Not only that, we see from the verse in Zechariah that he would be righteous, but also be, be having salvation. So he is the savior king. This is why the crowds were crying out, Hosanna, in Matthew 21, 9, which literally means, save us now. This cry of Hosanna is itself a quotation from Psalm 118, where the psalmist cries out, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. It's also essential for us to consider the timing of these events as they help us gain an understanding uh, an even deeper understanding of these quotations and fulfillments of the old prophecies. David Platt lays it out for us like this. He says, This was Passover week, the time when the population of Jerusalem would swell up to five or six times its usual size. People were coming to celebrate this feast of remembrance, a feast that reminded them of a time when God rescued their fathers from slavery in Egypt and brought salvation through the blood of a lamb. Now Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the one who was inaugurating a new and greater exodus. He was coming into Jerusalem during Passover week. This was not a coincidence. Despite all of Jesus' greatness and the significance of his coming here in Matthew, uh, Matthew also tells us in these verses that he was a gentle king. David Platt, again, Jesus didn't come arrogantly, but humbly. Unlike other earthly rulers, he was meek. Most people in the West today don't understand the concept of a king. Many of the examples we see of monarchies are only monarchies in symbol only. But in most places throughout history, a king would be honored with reverence and fear at his coronation. He would be dressed in ornamental and regal attire, surrounded by splendor and pageantry. Did anyone watch The Crown? Seen that scene where Elizabeth gets coronated? Well, I always think back to Gladiator when I think of this. It's a little bit different, perhaps. Uh, but when, when uh, the emperor comes into Rome and there's you know, rose petals raining from the skies and all of Rome was out to see this, 
But Jesus, on the other hand, was surrounded by lowly Galileans. And he came into the city not with riches, but in poverty, not in majesty, but in meekness. He came humbly and mounted on a donkey. Zechariah's prophecy also tells us about Jesus that he is a peaceful king. If you go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10 says that God's king, the one that verse 9 is, is prophesying about, would proclaim peace to the nations. We find that it was not uncommon, necessarily uncommon for a king to ride on a donkey. The key is when a king would ride on a donkey. See, if a king was going off to war, he would ride on a war horse as a picture of his power. But when not at war, the king might ride on a donkey as a picture of peace. So the fact that Jesus came in riding on a donkey speaks to his mission as the one who came to make it possible for us, for everyone, to have peace with God. As Luke records the triumphal entry here, he, he notes that the crowd cried out, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Luke 19.38 And then as Jesus drew near to the city and wept, he said, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? The message of peace is good news for those, who, those of us who are by nature enemies of God. Jesus is bringing a message of peace. Peace between God and man. Peace between men and women. We are reconciled to God through Christ. And we are reconciled to each other through Christ. This message was very different than the people were expecting. They were looking for this ruler to come in and overthrow whoever was oppressing Israel at the time. They expected God's king to come in and, and overthrow Rome and free them so that they would again be the political power. Does that sound like maybe every election, every four years down south? We need to become a Christian nation again. But God's king did not come to wield political power but to bring spiritual peace. God's king came as the prince of peace. And again, the peace that Jesus was bringing was not just for Israel. The peace that Jesus was bringing was for everyone. Again, Zechariah predicted that the king would proclaim peace to the nations, plural, and that his dominion would extend from sea to sea and to the end of the earth. It's in Zechariah 9, verse 10. So he is the global king, Jesus is the global king. He rules over every leader, every king, every prime minister, every president in the world. And the salvation that he accomplished is good news for all people. Connected to this, connected to Jesus' global reign is another important theme that we see throughout Matthew's gospel, that he's the messianic king. Verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The phrase of Son of God or Son of David continues to be used in Matthew's gospel. It's a, it appears as early as the first verse opening the genealogy. Jesus has been portrayed throughout Matthew as the promised Messiah, the king who had come from the line of David. So in, the, in essence then, when the crowds were shouting in verse 9, they were saying, Messiah, promised one, anointed one, save us. Son of David, Messiah, save us. 
Again, the crowds may not have, have totally known how Jesus would save them since it appears that no one, not even the disciples, had been able to connect the dots between Zechariah 9 of this coming king humble on a, on a donkey and Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant. It wasn't clear that the, that the conquering king would be the suffering servant, that the Messiah would save his people by, uh, by shedding his own blood for their sins during the Passover week. As well, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem said some of, led some of the religious leaders to want to kill him. If you look back in Matthew 20, we see this. But Jesus didn't respond in the way we might expect an earthly ruler to respond to threats. That's because he is the compassionate king. Luke 19.41 tells us that, that Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he approached it. See, the heart of Jesus was, was broken for the sinners that he came to save. And even though he knew that the crowds who were on this day asking, who is this, and shouting and cheering for him, would just days later be shouting, crucify him, Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem and headed towards the cross to suffer and die. Again, the crowds may not have fully understood who Jesus was, but they do get parts of his identity correct. In verse 11, the crowds say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We see that he is the prophetic king. And it may seem that this is maybe somewhat an off-the-cuff statement by the wondrous crowd, but, but in the context of Matthew's gospel, this, this phrase that he is the prophet, it bears, again, incredible significance. And David Platt, one more time, Matthew 21 gives us a glimpse of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, as the perfect prophet, perfect priest, and perfect king. We've already seen him depicted as king in verse 5, and soon Matthew will portray Jesus in the priestly role in the temple in verses 12 through 16, foreshadowing the way, the new way to God he will make for sinners. Likewise, Jesus is a prophet for he is God's word revealed to men in the flesh. And we see that especially in John 1, verse 1 and verse 14. Jesus is, the uni is unique in his fulfillment of those three roles or offices of prophet, priest, and king. But he's also unique in terms of his character. First and foremost, he is the holy king. Verse 12 and 13. We've talked about Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9, but also, again, about 500 years before this event takes place, uh, Malachi, or perhaps Malachi, the Italian prophet, he also talked about Christ. If we look at uh, Malachi 3, verse 1 to 4, the Jewish people were expecting the Messiah to come and purify the temple. Here's what we read. See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, like a cleansing lye. He will be like a refiner or an, and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of, of Levi, the temple, the priesthood, and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. The Jewish people were expecting God's messenger to come and to restore 
the way people, the people of God worshipped and purifying the priesthood and the priests. But once again, the way Jesus does this takes everyone off guard. And here's a scene in verse 12. Jesus enters the temple where the outer courts of, are bustling. And this was an area known as the court of the Gentiles because the Gentiles were not allowed in the main part of the Jewish temple. So this was the place for the nations. This was the place for those who were not Israel or not Jewish to meet with God in worship, praise, and prayer. But the problem was, rather than worship, Jesus found the space filled with commercial businesses, people trying to, to sell offerings and sacrifices and change some money, <clears throat> maybe make it a little easier for, for people to come, but make a few bucks on the side as well. So instead of a place of worship, he found people trying to profit off one another, trying to take advantage of one another, and ultimately ignoring the purposes of the temple. The nations could not worship because a market had moved in. A market for the Jewish people had moved in. So Jesus, in his righteous anger, drove them all out, overturning their tables and their seats. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Isaiah 56, verse 7, God says that his house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. Yet here in Matthew 21, the people of God were preventing the nations from praying. That's a big problem. Clearly, Jesus throwing tables around. Referring to the temple as it had become as a den of thieves or a den of robbers, Jesus is also likely referring back to another prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 7. The reason we're going back so often in the Old Testament to say, you know, this, this book is not just some random things thrown together. This story that we read, this narrative that we're reading, did not just come about haphazardly. There's, I, I cannot possibly think of a way that, that a book written in so many centuries why so many different authors could possibly be all tied together the way the Bible is without it being written by the hand of God. That's bonus. We're going back to Jeremiah chapter 7. Again, hundreds of years before this incident, the prophet wrote this. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. God's people were offering worship in Jeremiah's day, yet they did not behave in obedience to God. We talked a lot about that, looking through 1 John. Obedience and, and love and offering were all part part and partial, the same thing. So Jesus walked into a similar situation that Jeremiah is talking about here in Matthew 21. And as the holy king, he came to cleanse and purify God's temple. As holy, as one who is holy, Jesus does not deal with sin lightly, but rather with righteous anger. So Jesus has the right to cleanse the temple because the next thing we see is he is the authoritative king. Jesus now starts putting his authority on display. This chapter and, and those that follow demonstrate Jesus' final break with Judaism. 
He takes on the religious leaders of the day and he makes claims that they would call blasphemous, that were, were insults against God, claims that would ultimately lead them to crucify him. And there are four claims of authority in this text. First, we see in verse 12 and 13 that he has authority over the temple. If we went back in the book of Matthew to Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus claimed that he was greater than the temple, and as such, he has the right to do with this building whatever he desires, including throw it into disarray. Matthew 12, 6 says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He has authority over the temple. Second, he has authority over disease. Verse 14 we see this. The scene is not just one of, of righteous anger as Jesus cleansed the temple, but right away, the next verses, we see again Jesus' compassion. Some were welcomed into the temple, including the blind and the lame, and individuals who would often sit at the temple and beg for help. These individuals were restricted from going into the actual temple area, but rather being confined to the outer courts. D.A. Carson tells us this. But Jesus did not cast them out. Jesus cared for them, and he healed them. This is the only miracle of healing in Matthew's gospel that Jesus performs in Jerusalem. He is king, not only over kings and nations and religious leaders, but also over disease. It's no coincidence, Carson continues to say, that when heaven is described in the book of Revelation, the picture is very temple-like. And there, in the presence of Jesus and the worship of God, there is no sickness or disease or hurt or pain. We see that in Revelation 21. The third thing we see in verse 15, we see that he has authority over all people. Verse 15 tells us that the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of God. This is a real problem for the religious leaders when the children all over the temple began shouting, Save us, Messiah! Indignantly, the chief priests and scribes asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Verse 16. The leaders couldn't understand how Jesus could accept such a praise. And Jesus replied to them, again, again, by quoting the Old Testament. Psalm 8, verse 2. You have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants. Now, Psalm 8, we've often read it as a, as a call to worship, as a guide us to see who God is. The 8th Psalm is all about praising God, and it begins, Yahweh, God, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. What we see here is Jesus deliberately accepting praise that only God is due. He's claiming that for himself. The fourth authority we see in him comes in verses 18 through 20, that he has authority over all creation. Now, the story of the fig tree here may seem a little odd. It seems like maybe Jesus got the best of them, maybe his temper got riled up a bit, and when he found a tree that was maybe out of season and couldn't find any raspberry well, figs, but, you know, when I'm walking through the bush, hey, raspberries, but there's no raspberries. Die, tree, you know, that, maybe that's what we see, Jesus, like he's just, he's just fired up and uh, but let me, let's address that a little bit with, again, a few thoughts from David Platt. Mark's gospel also tells us this story. And although Mark's gospel tells us this wasn't the season for figs, this fig tree had leaves, which usually indicates that fruit is there. But Jesus found no fruit on the tree, so he cursed it. Not because he was angry at it, but in order to make a point. 
Platt says that the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree are closely related. In fact, Mark brackets the story of the temple cleansing with references to the fig tree to make the same point. Jesus here was rather commenting on the religious life and worship of God's people, particularly Israel's leadership. They had leaves, so to speak. They showed like they should be growing and doing things. But on the inside, there was no real fruit. There's a lot of man-centered religious activity that was completely devoid of God-centered spiritual productivity. These spiritually dead individuals claimed to worship God in the temple, all the while rejecting Jesus, who was God in the flesh, the new and greater temple. Jesus had no tolerance for such hollow worship and hypocritical religion. So to sum up what we've seen before, Matthew is presenting to us Jesus as a royal figure. He is the coming, the expected, the anticipated king. And this is going to happen in two stages as we continue through through the Bible we find this. The first time, as we're seeing in Matthew 22, Jesus came humbly, riding on a colt, ushering peace through his blood that he was about to shed on the cross. That was the purpose of Jesus coming to Jerusalem to rescue sinners, to bring peace. He also came to be crucified as king, not to deliver Israel from the power of Rome, as many expected the promised Messiah to do, but rather Jesus came to deliver all people from all nations in all places from the power of sin. We jump to to the back of the book. Revelation 19 tells us about Jesus' second coming, which has yet to happen. This time, however, he's not riding on a donkey, but a war horse. John records these words for us in Revelation 19, uh, verses 11 through 16. He said, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. We've heard that before in John 1. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King Jesus came the first time on Palm Sunday, what we now call Palm Sunday in Matthew 21 and in all four Gospels, humbly and riding on a horse, riding on a colt, excuse me. But he will come a second time, a second time, sovereignly reigning on a horse. And that final day is going to be very different than the one we saw in Matthew 21. Jesus came in to usher a way for us to have peace. If we have taken our time and we have not accepted Jesus' peace, if we have not given our allegiance to King Jesus on that day, that coming day when Jesus returns, it will be too late. He will not come to rescue sinners then, but he will come to rule sinners. He will not come again to be crucified as king, but he will come to be crowned as king. So, 
what do we do with this text? How do we apply it? Well, first, let's give Jesus praise. With all that we've seen here, with all that we see as we read through Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, John's gospel, we see that Jesus is king. We see that he's fulfilling century-old, centuries-old prophecies as the promised one of God to come and rescue and bring peace. We see that. So if he is king, then he is worthy of our surrender, and he is worthy of our submission to his kingship. Let's give Jesus praise. The second, let's prioritize prayer, because we see in verse 21 that whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We talked about that a couple times through 1 John as well. And prayer was one of the, the purposes of God's temple. People went there to pray, to meet God. But now God doesn't dwell in a physical building today. He inhabits his people. And so we need to be continually seeking this king every day. And I speak those words not as one who has it all figured out, but, man, I suck at that sometimes. Continually seeking our king, seeking to follow our king every single day through our prayers. See, our world is a noisy world. We are bombarded with all sorts of messages, both from outside the church and inside the church. And with so much going on, let us not stop slowing down for prayer. If you think of it, I, I would ask that you would pray exactly that for me this week, that Sean would slow down to pray, and I'll pray it for you this week as well. So let's give Jesus prayer praise, let's prioritize prayer, and let's bear fruit in our lives. Throughout our series in 1 John, we talked a lot about how if we claim Jesus as our king, this results in a transformation of, of really everything, of the way we view the world, the way we interact with the world, the way we lead our lives. And Matthew points us that way as well. We don't want to be like the religious people there who are just showing signs of religion, checking off boxes, but lacks spiritual fruit. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus curses a superficial religion. This king, King Jesus, desires and deserves more than hollow worship and hypocritical religion. So let's just examine ourselves. We'll take time to look at our own lives, look at our hearts, look at our weeks, how we organize our, our time, our talents, our treasures, and make sure that we're not just checking things off a list, but rather bearing fruit of the gospel in our lives. I appreciate again how, how David Platt concluded his commentary on these verses. So let me share an extended quote with you as we, as we wrap this up. After all of these things, at the end of our passage, verses 1 through 22, Jesus using the, uses the cursing of the fig tree based on the cleansing of the temple to bring the discussion back to prayer in verses 20 and 22, 20 through 22. Jesus speaks of telling a mountain to be lifted up and thrown into the sea. Now, perhaps obviously this is a figurative expression, but it is used to illustrate a spiritual reality. The point is not that we must muster up enough faith to do things like that, but rather the point is that if we have faith in God, then we will receive what we ask, even when something seems too difficult, humanly speaking. Anyone else facing anything that seems too difficult, humanly speaking? 
Maybe it was just me. You don't have to raise your hands. I do. I am. But what seems impossible to us is possible with God in prayer. Also, in these verses, the verbs are all plural. And so while these truths can certainly apply to us as individuals, Jesus is specifically giving this promise to the community of disciples. So Platt asks, what is your church asking God for that can only be accomplished by his power? I'm going to say that again because that's an important question for us to consider, especially as we are searching for a new lead pastor and a, and a, and a time of transition. What are we asking God for that can only be accomplished by his power. He says, have you asked him to give you an impact on the nations such that he alone gives the glory? He says, these are prayers that that God will answer. If we ask and believe, we will receive such things. So let us have faith as his church. We have every reason to be confident in Jesus, no matter what lies ahead. This king that came in Matthew 21, humbly riding on a donkey. This king can and will do the impossible when we ask. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these words this morning. I thank you for this time that we could have digging in. God, forgive me for the the many times where where I have not looked at you as those, these things, when I have not held you up as authoritative king, as, when I, I've, I've missed who you are. I thank you for this time this, this week God, that I could spend, and I thank you that you continue to, to preach this message to me. Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that you came 2,000 years ago, humbly ushering in peace, that you looked at, at, at your people, and you looked at the nations who were rebelling against you and said, no, I love them. My heart breaks for them. And so I will come. I'll come on a rescue mission, and, and even though they will reject me, even though they will nail me to a cross, this is the price that needs to be paid to overcome my people's rejection so that they can once again be in community with, with me and my Father. Thank you, Jesus, that that you took that posture, that you came to rescue us. As we head towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday, where we, we celebrate and remember your crucifixion and the death of Jesus, and then on Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus, we thank you for the, the, the restoration, the new life that we can have because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. Father God, show us, Holy Spirit, convict us in our hearts where we are uh, leading a a haphazard, a a hypocritical religious life, where we are doing things to check things off a list, but not allowing your word to soak in our hearts, to, to transform the way that we think, to transform the way that we live. Show those to us right now and give us the courage to confess, to repent, to turn from those things and run back to you, our King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
This has been a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people.